is the WTF Bach Podcast. The podcast about Johann Sebastian Bach, brought to you by his prodigal son, WTF Bach. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. Why don't you let WTF Bach guide you? And now, here's WTF Bach. It's Evan Generous, WTF Bach here. I mentioned on this podcast a few times that the best way to listen to it is from the beginning. But I realize that could be daunting as there's some 55 episodes, I don't know how many hours of material to cover. So just to make sure I'm not alienating any listeners, I will, in an episode like this one, go back occasionally and make sure that I retouch on an idea that is important for our appreciation of Bach. Now, I was recently shown some beautiful pieces of art by an old friend of mine, and the art reflected proportions in the golden ratio. Now, this is an idea that touches me personally. I find golden rectangles, golden triangles. I find the irrational number five very intriguing. I even built a bookshelf once using only golden rectangles. Yes, I am that kind of guy. Anyhow, I said, ah, you're like Bach, making art using the golden ratio, at which point she said, Bach, golden section, please explain. So I realized that I needed to give a refresher course on the idea of the golden ratio, the golden sections, the golden proportions, the theory of the golden means, all this gold in Bach. Bach was actually, in fact, keenly aware of this idea and makes use of it in many, many compositions, but not only in the compositions themselves, sometimes in the structural arrangement of pieces. So what what am I on about? What is the gold? Where is the gold in the golden section? In the initial episode, I go a bit deeper about how to arrive at the mathematical idea of this golden number, and I will put that episode as the first link in the description. So if I lose you here, if, or if I move a little too fast, you can consult that episode. But the idea is that in the Fibonacci sequence of numbers, that's the sequence of numbers that just adds the two previous numbers together to generate the next one. One plus one is two. One plus two is three. Two plus three is five. Three plus five is eight. Five plus eight is 13. Eight plus 13 is 21. 13 plus 21 is 34. If you keep going and generate this sequence of numbers, it doesn't matter where you start in that sequence. If you take any two consecutive numbers and turn them into a fraction, so I just ended with 21 and 34, right? So that's 21 thirty-fourths. That ratio is expressing a number increasingly, increasingly that of the golden ratio of this magical number. So if I go further down the sequence and divide two numbers again next to each other, uh, I happen to know that 89 and 144 are in this sequence of numbers. So if I type into a calculator, 89 divided by 144, I get 0.618055554. Okay, now apparently this idea has been around for thousands of years. The Wikipedia page mentions it having been written about as of uh, tooth. 200 BC in India. And it's it's quite fascinating. I, I take a number, I add it to another number, and then I divide those two numbers. And no matter how often I do that, the result is always the same. It's all, always very similar. So I could start there, like I said, with 89 and 144, 0.618, da 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 And if I go, you know, 100 numbers down the sequence of the Fibonacci sequence, and I divide those two numbers, I'm still going to get something that's 0.618, blah, 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 blah. Now that that must have captivated the mind of people. And clearly it's captivated the mind of musicians like Bach and, and painters and architects. But why would these musicians or painters or architects be drawn to this ratio, this magic number, actually this magic irrational number? Why would the Italian mathematician who worked closely with da Vinci, whose name is Luca Bartolomeo de Piaccioli, 
no, sorry, Pacioli. He, why would he call this number the divine proportion? And I think it was da Vinci himself who called this ratio golden. Why does this number fascinate artists, say, than, more so than pi, another perfectly fascinating irrational number? Well, the idea of phi, again, P-H-I, the idea of adding one thing to the previous, when we look at nature, at flowers, at vegetation, we can sometimes see that the, the branches of a tree, the petals of a flower, little bits of fruit, these appear to be growing out of the previous one. You know, like five grew out of two and three, and eight grew out of three and five. You look at the rows, and one leaf kind of comes out of the other one, comes out of the other one, comes out of the other one. So people have been seeing for a long time in nature reflections of this ratio, of this proportion, of this golden proportion. This is the idea that in nature, things are completely unaware of phi, obviously, of 0.618, and they do this themselves. Because after all, mathematics is discovered, right? Not invented. The idea that we find this irrational thing in, in nature, and it eludes our nice, simple ratio. That's what an irrational number is. It's, it's a number that can't be expressed as a ratio. It's irrational. So I'll move on. But if you want to keep learning about the golden number, ratio, spiral, what have you, again, the original episode covering this topic about three years ago is in the episode description. And then there's another book called The Golden Ratio, The Story of Phi, the world's most astonishing number. It sounds nice. I can't claim to have read it, but it sounds like maybe it would be astonishing. Where does Bach fit in here? He and other musicians from not only the Broke, but up to Debussy and Bartok, these, these composers are aware that should they be writing a piece of music, the natural place to have something remarkable happen is at 0.618. Whether or not that's a climax or a neat little trick or something very subtle, these composers, they, they often put something there at 0.618 or 61.8 or, you know, about 62% of the way through the piece, something happens. Now, I like that number, you know, 61.8, because it's not two-thirds, it's not 66%, it's not halfway, it's not 75%, but 61.8, this irrational number, you know, you can't, you can't quite put your finger on where that is. The decimals go on and on and on forever. So here in this episode, we are going to examine several examples of how exactly Bach will do that. So how do you, you at home, calculate the golden section of a piece of music that you're studying. Well, you figure out how many measures it has, and then you multiply it by the number 0.618. So for a fugue of 100 measures, or any piece with 100 measures, that's simple. The golden section is at measure 61.8, so about bar 62. Or another example, if your aria has 75 measures, the golden section is 75 multiplied by 0.618 equals 46.3, so somewhere around the middle of bar 46. Now, when talking about numbers and symbolism and things like that in Bach, even though I believe symbolism and the numerical proportions are sort of different topics, but people get really carried away when looking for stuff in Bach. I mean, really carried away. If you've ever had a casual stroll on the internet reading about Bach and numbers, you can find some heavy stuff, some over-the-top analysis, analysis that often represents how much time the analysis took more than anything that Bach could have intended. So, with that in mind, the examples here are going to be very obvious ones that are probably not disputable because they're so obvious, ones that only do the calculation, the number of bars times 0.618. Because, in fact, there are works of Bach where it appears that Bach has calculated the golden section of the golden section, 
or as we noted in, indeed in season one, the 11th fugue of the Art of Fugue, Bach seems to have calculated the golden section not from the beginning of the fugue, but from the end of the fugue. But it's not unique to Bach. Maybe that's hard for us to imagine in today's world, that composers hundreds of years ago had such command of writing music that not only could they compose music that was this complex and sounded coherent, but they could foresee while writing that, mm, I'm about 62% of the way through the piece. I'm, I'm feeling this. They had this intuition that was so strong that they could foresee this structural moment and do something with the music there that pointed out this proportion. But again, that is quite a different level of musical literacy. So let's move on to our first example. The first one that comes to mind, because really there are so many of them, I, I just have to pick the ones that come to mind. The first one that comes to mind is the first fugue from the Well-Tempered Clavier. This is a collection of 24 preludes and fugues. For the first time in musical history, it is now possible to move through all tonalities with one temperament. That's the victory that is the well-tempered clavier. You could think of it as sort of a how-to, how to tune your clavichord, harpsichord, how to tune your clavier, and how to compose in every key, a prelude and a fugue in every key. In fact, you are highly aware of this collection of music because the very first piece is... It is indeed that very famous piece. That is the first prelude of the Well-Tempered Clavier, and the first fugue is this fugue here. The subject is this. This fugue is 27 bars long, so right away let's calculate the golden section times 0.618 is... 16.686. So we could say somewhere in the middle of bar 16. Well, what happens in the middle of bar 16 in this fugue? Bach begins to approach the golden section around bar 14. He starts to stretto the, the subject. He starts to have them come together. And in the bass, we'll see this stretto, but then right in the middle of bar 16, he says, this is the first time and the only time I'm going to have all four voices stretto one after the other from top to bottom. So here is the, literally, the middle of bar 16. The soprano starts alto, tenor, and then the bass. So it actually happens so fast that I can't even speak about it. I'll, I'll play it from top to bottom, see if you can hear all four voices. Okay, something like that. I will now play Trevor Pinnock. I'm not going to play the entire fugue for the sake of this episode, but this is Trevor Pinnock, and I will say something when the golden section happens. Okay, here we are. Soprano, alto, tenor, and bass. Okay, I'll play the same thing and I won't speak over it and see if you can hear it happening. Okay, I was going to move on to uh, another genre, the violin works, but then I thought also 
something incredible in the golden section happens even in the very first invention. Um, you know, you think that a piece, such a small piece, the, the first two-part invention composed for his 10-year-old son, uh, that, you know, he would leave out maybe such complexities. But no, the idea of a piece moving from A to B is, in, is so ingrained, you know, it's so deep within Bach that even there he will put something interesting. Imagine being 10 years old and, and, uh, and, and coming across this music. Um, the first invention... Bach later changed it to something like this, so I will kind of talk through it. So you could see so far that when one voice is speaking, they're going at two different uh, speeds, I suppose you could say. For, for example, you'll hear it here. The left hand simply plods along in eighth notes, while the right hand... And now, while the right hand will be in eighth notes, the left hand will pick it up. Okay, so where is the golden section here? First, let's see how many bars this uh, piece is. It's 22. I know where the golden section is, so it's halfway through bar 13. But what what is going to happen? Um, where did I stop here? Let's see. Still um, conversation, we could say, at two different speeds. And now the right hand, the right hand is going to have eighth notes while the left hand goes on in fast rhythms. Now we're at bar 13, and here is the middle of bar 13, and we have, for the first time, we have this. It is the first and the only time in the piece that the voices will travel both at 16th notes at the same exact speed. Before that and after that, the voices will come at two different speeds. For example, here's immediately after the golden section in bar 14, the voices separate into two distinct rhythms. Even there, even in this small piece composed for his son learning music at age 10, even there, uh, Bach has something very special going on. All right, moving on now to the violin works. I will, I will always remember this one because I was learning this piece, um, <laughs> believe it or not, on the accordion uh, by ear because I didn't have uh, a piano with me and I didn't have the score with me. So I, I, But I had this recording and it was Milstein. He's one of my favorite um, interpreters of the violin music. You know, I had to go second by second. It's an agonizing process if you've ever done it. But I'll tell you, when, when you learn a piece off of the recording, you will never forget the piece because of such a process. Anyhow, there are a few bars there uh, in the middle of this piece that I thought, again, I didn't have the, the score, I thought that must be the golden section because there's something just slightly different about the language. I couldn't pinpoint why, but something was just different there. So the piece is, in fact, the finale, the last movement from the A minor sonata for the, for the solo violin. Uh, it is this piece. And I'm going to bash through the 
first half of it, if you don't mind. There is, in fact, a uh, harpsichord version of the whole sonata, masterfully done by Bach, uh, transposed into D minor, which I will play uh, at some point. Meanwhile, just listen to the language. And forgive my mistakes. That is the first half. The second half begins in E minor, the dominant minor. And you're listening to this thinking, how is Bach going to turn the stream of notes, just a stream of notes, into something special at the golden section? Here we are, we're getting very close to it now. And here we are. Okay, that was the golden section here. So first of all, it's in uh, C major. And the piece started in A minor. So we could say, what can we say about it? It's in, it's in um, the relative major. It went from A minor to C major. He climbs from the bottom of the violin, the open G string here, to the D string, and just... There is something about this language here. I think it's possibly the fact that this is, is just a, a series of uh, fourths. It's, it's quartal. Even there, even in this stream of notes, Bach is able to just masterfully adjust the, you know, the language from something that is dominated by triads, things built in thirds, and just kind of blow it apart into, into fourths. Rather beautiful. First, I'm going to play the Milstein version, and then I'm going to uh, attempt to vindicate the way that I just played this uh, here on this uh, rather clumsy piano by playing um, playing on harpsichord, the harpsichord version in D minor. Thank you. 
So that's Nathan Milstein, and now here's a harpsichord recording of myself. Our next one, well, this is from the Mass in B minor. This one, ugh, it ha- had me in tears because I knew, I just knew what was going on the first time I really got into it. And again, I had to go back with the calculator and check, is this actually where the golden section is? So in order to learn a piece of Bach properly, I would say in general, you've got to go play if there are instrumental parts or sing if there are vocal parts through all the parts. You have to go through every single part. Now, I'm not a tenor, but I was singing the tenor line of the piece. And again, I mean, I just started bawling because I I understood what was happening quite plainly. This is the confiteor. It's a fugue in F-sharp minor. First of all, great key for Bach. F-sharp minor, it's a fugue for choir only and basso continuo. So you got the rhythm section, the Baroque rhythm section, moved along, and then you've got the choir taking up a fugue and the text here, confiteor unum Baptisma, I acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. There's a chant melody within the fugue. Now, I've had a slightly difficult time locating exactly upon which chant this is based. So if you can find this chant melody for me, 
uh, please let me know. Anyways, it's Gregorian chant. It's its old chant. You could tell by the the style. The chant melody sounds like this. I will because I can't find a recording of it. I will sort of make myself sound like I'm in a choir in a in a church. I'll put lots of reverb on it. I'll kind of make it uh, modal sounding. <laughs> Okay, that was the Gregorian me ensemble. Uh, this movement itself is in fact a fugue followed by about 25 bars of other text. So we can think about this as, you, you know, two, two places to put the golden section. First, within the fugue itself. The fugue itself is 120 bars long. So the golden section of that is 74.16, so basically about bar 74. But the movement itself with these extra 25 bars, um, I should, I probably should do an entire episode on these 25 bars of the et expecto. This is the choir saying we expect, as in we expect the resurrection of the dead. We look look for the resurrection of the dead. Um, it's adagio. You, you, the, the entire world is just paused with the et expecto. Like we really, we are waiting. Anyhow, that is an extra... Um, 25, 26 bars. So the, the entire movement is around 146 bars. So the golden section of the entire movement itself is bar 90. Okay, so we've got the golden section of the fugue and the golden section of the entire movement. Now, the golden section of the fugue will be a stretto of that Gregorian chant melody between the basses and the altos. So the stretto itself will sound like this. Again, this melody is broken up into um, little bits. So confiteor unum baptisma. This is the basis. In remissionem peccatorum. And the, the altos will come in stretto. So again, that's the device that he places at the golden section of the fugue, this, this beautiful stretto. He says, this is Gregorian chant. This is based on this Gregorian chant. I acknowledge one baptism in the golden section of the entire piece as a whole. That's when he takes the Gregorian chant melody and he puts it in the tenors. If you recall the, the previous few episodes talking about the chorale prelude and the chorale and who had the original melody, it is always the tenors. Again, the evangelist, always a tenor. This is the person singing the melody. At the golden section of the entire thing, Bach will have the tenors singing out in augmentation that is twice as slow, that very Gregorian chant melody. And that is what brought me to tears. Uh, Murray Pariah, the great pianist, says everyone is a Christian while, while playing Bach or everyone must be a Christian. And, you know, despite what people may believe, to actually be, be to find yourself as the tenor in this ensemble, all these voices moving around you, you know, everything going. And then you, you get the liberty of singing very slowly. I mean, actually slower. It's really like slow motion music. You are really stamping it into you. I acknowledge this. This 
this is truly incredible. A, a unique moment in, in music history, I believe. Okay, here is Sigiswald Kuiken. I always butcher that pronunciation. Sigiswald Kuiken. Always ask a local. Thank you, Mr. Janek. K-U-I-J-K-E-N. I'm going to play right here the excerpt where the golden section of the entire thing is, where the tenor has the chant melody in augmentation, just so you can glimpse that sound world. Then I'll play the entire movement so you can locate it within. Maybe you heard, hopefully you heard very slowly the tenor there. You're really stamping this, this idea of belief into your head. Here's the entire movement. Thank you. 
guess it is cruel for me to not give you the resurrection of the dead right there, but alas, we must go on, and life is cruel. Now, I believe the first mention of the golden means, the theory of this golden ratio, was probably mentioned on the podcast because of the Art of Fugue. And in many, if not most, if not all of the fugues in the Art of Fugue, Bach has something happening at 61.8% of the, of the way through the fugue. Uh, I want to refresh your memory on one of those fugues, which is the 10th fugue. It's a double fugue. See, in, in the Art of Fugue, Bach has several fugues written with this idea, with this theme. And then later he says, okay, not only can we use this theme, but we can use uh, more themes, uh, double, triple themes, even in the last fugue, a quadruple, four themes, one theme in every voice. Uh, the theme here, the other theme besides the Art of Fugue theme, sounds like this. And Bach says, yes, um, here, this is our Art of Fugue theme. Turned, turned upside down, and he says it, it can indeed work on the same note. They both start on C. But, he, but that's, you know, Bach being Bach, it doesn't satisfy him enough. He, he says, yeah, fine, it can come on the same note, but it can also come at a different note. That's sort of the idea in, in some of these double fugues, that not only can he have two subjects, but they can come at uh, different intervals. So now here's the, the interval coming at, at the interval uh, of a tenth. So here, here it was at the same note. And now here it is at the tenth working. Bach plays with this throughout the entire fugue, and he says, okay, here's, here's one theme coming at, at this interval, and then here's another theme coming at the other interval. But the fact that these two intervals are um, concordant together, you know, the fact that they sound beautiful together, Bach will save that for the golden section. And he will, at, at exactly 61.8% of the way through this fugue, he will combine both of those in this. And, you know, that's, that's beautiful. I mean, these are parallel sixths uh, singing out this, this gorgeous Art of Fugue theme while the, the second theme comes uh, in, in the bass. Parallel sixths? Sixths? Talk about difficult for non-English speakers. Sixths? Parallel sixths, equally amazing, or even more amazing, is that for whatever reason, this is the fugue uh, to which Bach added a completely new opening in bet between the autograph and the printed version. So he tacks on, you know, X number of bars at the opening. So if you can imagine that this was the same between both versions, then tacking on extra bars shifts this into the mathematical golden section. So did Bach tack on that extra beginning so that this beautiful cry of parallel sixths would be at the golden section? It's, it's possible, it's possible. Bach maybe thought that is such a special moment. 
that I need to make sure it's in the golden section. Here is, um, I mean, it wouldn't be the WTF Bach podcast without at least one electronic version. So here is a section highlighting the golden section, and then you'll hear the, the parallel six screaming out. One penultimate example of Bach using the golden section. I'm not fully going to get into here because, A, I, I want you to join the substack that uh, I'm now releasing my, my writings on. The podcast is now there. But, you know, I've been writing in depth about some of these ideas. And this is one that I think you should see on paper uh, that I won't exactly describe. But if you haven't already, go to wtfbach.substack.com. It's completely free, and you'll get a notification when I have released a podcast, and you'll also have access to a lot of these writings. Now, one of the, for me, the most extraordinary uh, organizing principles that involves the golden ratio, the theory of the golden means, are the six solo pieces for violin. There are six of them. The first four are in minor keys and the last two are in uh, major keys. So where do you think Bach makes the division between the minor keys and the major keys? Yes, exactly at 61.8% of the way through the entire set, but through the entire set. Now I've mentioned that counting measures, it can be very dangerous. Um, again, I'm writing a bit about Ruth Tatlow, this this uh, woman who's been involved in considering numerical symbolism in Bach for two decades, plus Daniel Melamed, who I believe will later guest on this podcast. He has some wonderful ideas that are, I believe, very elegant counter arguments to Ms. Tatlow. But this here for me is, is something that I really can't ignore. Um, how much of it is coincidence? How much of it is, is really Bach's planning? An entire collection of music of six pieces for solo violin has X number of bars. And if you multiply that number of bars by 0.618, it puts you exactly, exactly like to the decimal point at the beginning of the fifth piece, which is the first piece in major. To me, that is extraordinary. So you'll see me writing about that on the substack. Now, the last example I want to give, since I, I think the first one I gave was this fugue. We're going to go over to the last fugue from the same collection, which is, you know, we could consider the first 12-tone row in music. More on that, again, uh, on the substack. But here is the theme. And we've got now 12 notes. Okay. Uh, here it is again without me talking.
and then answer. I mean, this sounds like absolute, uh, you know, futuristic music, uh, extraterrestrial music. Even the fact that this is 1722, it's 300 years later, and this music still sounds out there. In the countersubject to this very complicated theme, there is、uh, an interesting figure here.、Um, some people see it as as a cross. Indeed, it is. It is a, a musical a cross. You you hear these notes crossing over each other.、Um, people see Bach as carrying the cross,、uh, carrying the burden of tonality, and now he's he's solved it. So you you see him, you know, not only carrying all twelve tones with the theme, but you you see him carrying the literal cross in the in the countersubject.、Uh, it can be it can be pretty heavy to consider such an idea when you're talking about music. So this fugue has seventy six measures. So seventy six times point six one eight equals forty six point nine six. Etc. So you know the end of bar forty-six, or we could even say bar forty-seven. So we go to the end of bar forty-six, right? And we see, you know, in fact, this this idea. We could say, aha, there are three crosses there. Now three with Bach and three crosses, Golgotha, right? This this could be him saying, I'm going to put three crosses here. And we could stop there and say that is an that is a,、uh, an excellent use of of the golden section, putting three crosses there. But I'm going to take this one step further, my friends. Now the original cross, if you are to、um, put it together. Or another one. They they always contain、um, four pitches. If you're to invert them like that, or this one, or or even another one, they always contain four pitches that, even though they are highly chromatic, are not chromatically connected. So then you ask yourself, what is different about these? Crosses in bars forty-six and forty-seven, and you realize that they're slightly differently shaped. So let's look at、um, crosses two and three. The beginning of bar forty-seven, we have this, and we see that, in fact, if I were to invert these two, these these only have、uh, three notes. But if I look at that one, at exactly the end of bar forty-six, and if I invert it, I think maybe some of you are ahead of me. This is chromatically connected, which is a spelling of B A C H, and this is Bach signing. His well-tempered clavier at precisely. Remember, I said it's at the end of bar forty-six. This is exact. This is the last beat of bar forty-six. Bach has, for the only time in this fugue, his cross figure with the four chromatic notes that could be rearranged to spell B A C H, and then follows 
two other crosses. This is not me uh, getting carried away with myself. Th this has been seen as, you know, Bach's signature on this piece. He waits until the very last fugue, and then he waits right to the golden section to not do something like a quadruple stretto or, or an augmentation like we've seen in the other examples, but to write B-A-C-H. I think of it as sort of the most humble signature in art, you know, it, it doesn't say Picasso on the canvas or, 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 or anything. It's, it's really hidden in there, but it's there, you can see. And then, of course, Bach doesn't want all the glory himself. He writes at the very end of this fugue, Soli Deo Gloria, um, glory to God alone, which, you know, Bach did not, by the way, Bach did not come up with this uh, idea. This isn't a, a unique thing that Bach adds to the end of his manuscripts. It is a very common thing in the Baroque. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Here is Ralph Kirkpatrick, one of the greats, playing this last fugue on the clavichord. I won't um, speak about it. Again, I won't be speaking over Mr. Kirkpatrick's recording. But just again, uh, listen, listen for that idea of those three crosses. One, two, three. Even turn up your volume if... You're not satisfied with the sound? This is the clavichord. If you were to speak a normal conversation, that amount of decibels would be drowning out the clavichord. It's such a beautiful, intimate instrument.
Thank you.